Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. Over the years, I've had a number of friends who have suffered, in some cases, really terribly with anxiety or depression or some other really debilitating mental health disorder. I suspect I'm not the only one who could say that. Indeed, these issues are so common in the modern world, especially in the West, that it's very likely that a number of you folks watching this video have suffered or indeed are suffering in some way with a condition of that kind right now. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, 18 or 19 percent of American adults are diagnosed with some kind of anxiety related issue every year. They also say that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. And so clearly this is something that it would be a good thing for us to talk about. And I was actually prompted to think about this topic by something I encountered in the Psalms, and I want to share that with you in a moment or two. But before I do that, just a, a couple of caveats. I, I do think it's important to uh, say the obvious at this stage. This is a hugely complex issue. Um, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I have absolutely no professional qualifications as a psychologist to speak about the psychological factors involved in uh, anxiety and depression and related disorders. I think maybe uh, I, I'm not alone in that actually and maybe one of the reasons why churches don't talk about this issue as much as perhaps we could is that ministers don't feel able to talk about the clinical factors. But I do think we are able to talk about biblical and pastoral factors and the Bible does deal with the whole person. It, it might not deal with us in quite the technical ways that some other disciplines like psychology and psychotherapy might deal with us, but nonetheless scripture has something to say to us and actually has something to say to all of us about these issues, whether or not we're suffering with them. And I hope that in this video and actually in the next two or three videos, Lord willing, uh, some of those things might become clear. Uh, the other thing that I want to say uh, just before we get into the guts of this is that I want to invite you to get in touch, uh, particularly perhaps if this is something which uh, you know personally uh, or have experienced personally yourself. Uh, this is perhaps the sort of thing that is best to walk through together. And so uh, perhaps especially if you know somebody or if you yourself have been or are suffering with anxiety or something of that kind, please you know, speak up. Just, you know my email address, just ping me an email. Um, uh, even at this distance, it would be fruitful, I think, perhaps just to have a brief conversation about that. And maybe there'd be some ways in which uh, I could offer some insight from the scriptures, which might be helpful for you personally. But with that all said, let me tell you how I started thinking about this. I was working through the Psalms in these morning devotions, as you know, and uh, I started to think about some of my friends who'd suffered with depression in the past. And I started to think, well, I wonder where in the Psalms uh, we find Psalms that deal with this. So I started to search. And what I found was really surprising to me. I'd had a hunch that this was the case actually for a while, but I actually checked. I looked through the whole of the book of Psalms to try and find every single Psalm in which the Psalmist made some kind of cry for help, pleading with God for uh, him to uh, rescue him or to come to his aid or to uh, provide uh, reassurance or something to him. And, and there were a total of 73 out of 150 psalms in the English 
numbering system of the Psalms, um, which have some kind of cry for help, whether a lament or a prayer or something like that. But then where it got really interesting is I started to look at the causes of those cries for help. In 66 out of 73 cases, the cries for help came in the context of the psalmist being oppressed by his enemies. Those who seek to destroy my life, wicked men, uh, liars, evildoers, uh, friends who've abandoned him or something of that kind. In other words, there was a concrete, identifiable, specific cause of his crying out to God. It wasn't generalised anxiety disorder or depression. It was, I'm being chased around the Judean wilderness by people who, with swords who want to cut my head off. That's what was pro prompting his cries to the living God. That was 66 out of 73. The remaining seven, well, one of them, the psalmist, was longing for the courts of the Lord. He wanted to be with the people of God. One of them, Psalm 119, the psalmist at one or two points is longing for the word of God. And the other five, well, the other five, the psalmist was lamenting over previously unconfessed sin. In other words, in 150 psalms, there was not a single psalm in which just anxiety generalised anxiety or just depression or just a feeling of weightiness and lowness seemed to be the issue. And you think about it, that's remarkable because the Psalms are a kind of compendium of all the emotions of the Christian life. They're supposed to be, in Martin Luther's words, a little Bible. They're supposed to contain within them all of the subjective responses to God that we should expect to find in our lives. So if that's the case, then where, where is the anxiety? Where is the depression? Well, I think we should be quite careful what implications we draw from this. We, we don't want to rush hastily to conclusions. Um, one possibility uh, is that actually in the modern world, uh, our circumstances are such that anxiety and depression are much more common than they have been in previous uh, generations. Maybe that's part of the reason. Another possibility is that those phenomena were there in Scripture, but they were just described differently. And so we'd have to look out for them in different ways. We wouldn't be able to find people uh, crying out to God because of their depression. We'd have to look in other ways. I think there might be something in that as well. I don't think it's likely that... that um, well, if you're experiencing anxiety, you're just imagining it. I don't think that's likely. I don't think that's a reasonable explanation. The feelings seem too real and too intense and too widespread for that. And neither do I think it's possible that Scripture doesn't address it. Here's what I really think, and this is what I want to share with you and to talk with you in the next few videos, having you know, this brief introduction, I guess. I think Scripture does address these issues, but I think it addresses them in some surprising ways. And I want to share some of those with you. Uh, and I hope that it will help not just those of you who may have been or may be even now suffering with anxiety or depression or anything like that. I hope it may help all of us, because as Scripture addresses these things, it will also address many other things which will speak to all of us, I trust. Uh, and maybe it will show us some unexpected paths forward to fruitfulness and to maturity in the future. In the meantime, as I said, please do get in touch. Ping me a quick email. SteveJeffrey1703 at gmail.com if you want to talk about any of these things in particular. I'd love to hear from you. 
uh, and then see you in a couple of days' time for the next devotion, and I'll share something else with you that um, I've discovered and I think may be helpful. For now, God bless you, and hope, Lord willing, to see you very soon. Bye for now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. I want to continue on the subjects of anxiety and depression that I raised in the previous video. Remembering, of course, that what I have to say will, I hope, be relevant and helpful to all of us, and not just to people afflicted with those particular issues. I want to tell you a story, which I can assure you is an entirely true story. I've actually uh, got this firsthand from one of the people involved, and I think this may be helpful to open up this subject a little more. The story concerns an experienced nurse who took a job helping a woman in her 60s care for her daughter. The daughter was in her 40s and as a child had been seriously ill and the illness had left her extremely weak physically, physically fatigued basically, uh, for years and years and years. Um, as a consequence she was completely bedridden. The daughter was unable to get out of bed unassisted. She couldn't wash herself, she couldn't use the bathroom without help, she couldn't feed herself, she had she couldn't even lift a spoon to her mouth, she couldn't brush her hair, she couldn't turn the pages of a book, she couldn't do anything like that for herself. It was too physically demanding. And so this experienced nurse took a job helping the mother, who in her late 60s by this time uh, obviously needed a bit of assistance caring for her daughter. And over the weeks it became apparent to this nurse that not everything was quite as it had initially appeared. It started to seem that the daughter knew things about the layout of the house in which she lived that she couldn't possibly have known if she was actually bedridden and had stayed in bed all the time. She knew a number of different things, various things came to light at different times. For example, she, she knew where things were downstairs that had been moved in recent times and certainly weren't like they were when she was a little child, when she was last supposed to have been out of bed. Um, she knew where things were in cupboards and that kind of thing. And so the nurse started to wonder whether in fact the daughter was not bedridden. Maybe she was getting up probably during the night when her mother was asleep and you know, walking around the house doing the sort of things that we would normally do, but normally we do it during the day. And but for some reason, didn't want to let on. She'd rather remain seemingly bedridden during the day and have everything done for her. The question is, of course, what could this nurse do? I mean, it would be quite a painful thing just to confront her with this, wouldn't it? Um, so what could she do? And um, on one occasion, um, the nurse was holding a, a book, I think it was an electronic book, and holding it so that the daughter could read it and the page needed to be turned and so the nurse kept pretending to make a mistake not being able to turn the page on the book. Of course this was a bit frustrating for the daughter who wanted the page to be turned so she could continue reading and eventually out of her frustration the daughter grabbed the book physically snatched it from the nurse and turned the page herself only to realize immediately what she'd done. She'd revealed the truth about herself. Actually she had been really seriously ill but she wasn't so seriously ill anymore. The problem now was not that she was physically fatigued. 
The problem now was that she didn't really want to get well. And I think that's an astonishing account. I, it's the sort of thing I wouldn't believe if it hadn't been told to me by such a reliable source. And it raises the question, what could make somebody behave like that? Well, it turns out that this is one of the things that Scripture sheds light on. Not in conventional psychological categories, but in categories that are applicable to all of us in the many different ways in which we need to grow in maturity in Christ. On one occasion, you remember when Jesus goes to the pool at Bethesda in John chapter 5, and he meets a man who's been there for 38 years. And he says to the man in John chapter 5, Do you want to get well? Which you might think is an absolutely stupid question to ask. Of course he wants to get well. He's been there 38 years. Unless, of course, Jesus, being Jesus, understands that human wiring, we might say maybe human psychology, is such that sometimes somebody who's been ill for a long time doesn't want to get better. And of course, as a healing, this narrative is a picture of all the different aspects of emotional, physical, and spiritual healing that all of us need. All of us need, in some sense, to get well, whether it's to get well from uh, besetting sin and temptation, or to uh, get well physically, or to get well emotionally and psychologically. And Jesus asks this man, is that what you actually want? As though it's not obvious that he would. Remarkably, this kind of thing happens a number of times in the Gospels. When Jesus meets the men as he's coming out of Jericho, he says, what do you want? Well, they're blind, Jesus. Obviously, they want to see. But Jesus insists that they tell him that that's what they want. It's as though if they don't want it, then nothing, they won't be, he won't be able to do anything for them. And then you think of other occasions when Jesus engineers the situation, or in God's providence, the situation is such that people have to do something to demonstrate they want to be healed. The woman with the issue of blood, for example, in Mark 5. Or the man born blind in John 9, whom Jesus says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Like Elisha said to Naaman, you've got to go and wash in the Jordan. Obviously, there's loads of imagery and symbolism there. But the most basic thing is they had to do something. They had to demonstrate that they wanted to be healed. And it's possible tragically possible in some cases, like the case of that daughter in her 40s, that she didn't really want to be. And so whatever we are struggling with, here's one of the crucial questions that we just need to ask. Do you actually want to change? Do we want to be done with that sin? Do we want to be done with this emotional weight upon us? And what would we be willing to do to be rid of it? Come back and look at this question again uh, in the next video. But for now, do give us a shout. Send us an email if you want to talk about any of this stuff. Otherwise, be assured, be praying for you all. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye for now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. You remember that in the previous video, in this little mini-series, I related that tragic account of the woman in her 40s who had been apparently bedridden for decades. 
Except that she wasn't really as physically frail as all that. She wasn't bedridden. And an experienced nurse had realised this, had realised that what had happened is the physical sickness wasn't really the problem anymore. The problem now was that this poor woman in her 40s didn't want to be well. And I left you with that question. What? Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody behave in that way? Such a tragic and desperate situation. And the intriguing thing, an unnerving thing perhaps, is that Jesus appears to be aware of this in addressing the man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, a man who's been there for 38 years, infirm for 38 years. Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? As though it's possible that he might not want to be. And it raises the unnerving question that not just for that lady, the bedridden woman in her 40s, but for all of us in all the different uh, aspects of our lives that aren't as they ought to be. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, do we actually want to change? Do you want to be well? As I said, this is not relevant simply to people who are struggling with anxiety or depression, though perhaps particularly it may be relevant to people in that situation. But it's a question all of us need to consider. And I don't think there's a simple answer to it. I think rather that there's probably a combination of factors. And I just want to indicate three overlapping areas that I think may be significant. The first is the issue of identity. Who we are. We have an identity given to us by God. It's the body we have and uh, to a great extent, many of the likes and dislikes that we have. And then on top of that, we do kind of create additional factors to our, our identity, uh, the way that we appear in the world. We, we develop through routines and through choices we make certain habits and certain temperaments and certain attitudes. We cultivate a way of being in the world, an identity. And these are the things that other people like or find a little bit annoying about us, um, uh, you know, the, oh, he's always a little bit like that, or she's always saying things like that. The, the things that make us who we are, our identity, are how we appear in the world. And here's the problem. Sometimes when we're creating that portion of our identity, which is who we're making ourselves to be, sometimes we can include things that aren't as they ought to be. It's even possible that for people in the sort of situation that that lady was in, or the man in John chapter 5 was in, that being in that terrible physical state may have become such a part of his identity that he didn't want to relinquish it. He didn't want to let it go. And so it's a question that we have to actually honestly confront ourselves with. Is whatever it is that's not right about us, something that we actually want to get rid of? Are we willing to let to not be defined by it anymore? Or is it possible that it's got such a hold of us that it's somehow comforting that we can point to ourselves in a sense and say, this is who we are. We feel secure because we know our identity and it rests in this thing. If that's the case, that's a real tragedy because we we risk not being able to change, not being able, in Jesus' words, to be healed. Do you want to be healed? Do you want this to not be part of your identity anymore? See, in those words of Jesus, as 
they're gentle, aren't they? But they're so sharp. Do you want to be healed? Identity, that's the first bit. The second, I think, is fear. The world is a scary place. And when we struggle or suffer in various ways, then to different degrees, we're able to withdraw from the world. That woman, uh, bedridden, the man in John 5, lying, disabled, they've withdrawn from the world and therefore they've withdrawn from some of the challenges of living in the world. And frankly, sometimes, even though you think, well, where I am now isn't a very nice place to be, getting to where I ought to be could be so painful, I'd rather not go through this. It's like if you have a splinter in your finger, it hurts while it's there, just like it's not pleasant lying paralysed or ill for decades, but the process of taking it out may be so painful that we'd rather just leave it in there than endure that temporary pain of getting to the place where we want to be. It's possible that fear of confronting the challenges of the world that we know we'll have to confront for ourselves if we don't have this thing to cling to anymore, people will expect us to take those challenges on and maybe fear stops us. And related to that issue of fear, I think, is a third point, the issue of responsibility. God be praised. When we find ourselves lost emotionally or physically sick, people do things for us. People take responsibility for uh, aspects of our lives. You know, if you're sick in bed, somebody else will take responsibility for um, your food. They'll bring you food. They'll bring you a drink of water, you know. You go and have a shower, you sort of struggle to the shower, and you come back and they've kind of made the bed for you or something. It's just somebody else will do the things for you that um, we normally would have to do for ourselves. And there's always that uh, two-edged sword with responsibility. Um, responsibility comes at a heavy price. We, we have to do things for ourselves. At the same time, of course, responsibility is what life is for. We are here to take responsibility in the world and yet that's the downside isn't it to take responsibility means yeah I have to take responsibility if my significance comes to a certain extent from what I'm willing to take responsibility for then am I willing to pay the price for that so you see again in Jesus in Jesus innocuous looking words do you want to be healed you know it's possible people could be really offended by that how dare you suggest that? How dare you suggest that I wouldn't want to be here? How dare you suggest any of these things about me? Well, I think Jesus doesn't mind poking us because Jesus knows that all of us, I mean, to draw an analogy with our sin, isn't it true that all of us, to a certain extent, love our sin just as we hate it? So what we can say about sin, couldn't we say it about all these other aspects of our lives as well, our immaturities and uh, all the emotional and temperamental things about us that aren't what they ought to be? Do you actually want to change? Well, here's the good news. Jesus shows that change is possible. Forget the psychological surveys that tell you how many people, what percentage of people with X uh, pathology can change and become like Y. Jesus says change is possible. Do you want to change? Because Jesus says you can. And he, at the same time, lays this 
question before, do you really want it? And now in the next video, I want to hint at a couple of uh, what we might consider paths to that change. Where would Jesus have us go and how would Jesus have us get there if that change is what we really wanted? For now, though, as I said, if any of this has struck a chord with you, please do keep in touch. Ping us a quick email and let me know. It'd be lovely to talk. Um, and see you next time. In the meantime, God bless you. And I hope to see you soon. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. You remember in the previous video, I promised that this devotion would begin considering some practical biblical pathways towards dealing with anxiety and depression. And it is still my intention, I promise, it is still my intention to get, get onto those practical biblical steps as soon as possible. But I have received a number of emails from you guys, from folks in the congregation, uh, relating some experiences that you've had uh, in connection with some of these uh, uh, issues, anxiety and depression and so on. Those emails have been very helpful to me and I'm grateful for them. And one of the things that's come out of them is you've raised a question which I think it's very important for us to consider before we go any further. So I'd like to spend a moment or two in this video, if you don't mind, talking about this question. It's a very significant one and the question is this. Is anxiety a sin? Is depression a sin? Are panic attacks and these other issues of mental lack of well-being and emotional lack of well-being, are they in themselves sinful? And a number of you have said you've encountered friends and uh, other Christians in the past who've said, yes, they are. They're sinful. And I want to address this issue because it seems to me that there is a danger of some misunderstanding here. First, let's just think for a second why Christians, well-meaning friends, relatives, and so on, might think that anxiety and depression and so on are always sinful. The reason is quite simple, actually. On the face of it, Scripture contains a number of texts that point in exactly this direction. Think, for example, of what Paul the Apostle says in Philippians chapter 4. Famously, don't be uh, anxious about anything. Philippians 4 verse 6 or Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And so there's two verses, Philippians 4, 4 and 6, which seem to say that first, depression, lack of joy, and then second, anxiety are sinful because Paul commands us not to embrace those feelings. First Thessalonians 5 points in a similar direction. Rejoice always. And of course, our Lord Jesus has an extended section in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, in which he says, don't be anxious about your life and don't be anxious about what you'll eat and what you'll drink and what you'll wear. It seems that anxiety is, in these texts, sinful. Moreover, there's the broader point which sometimes leans people in this direction which is that we know that everything that's wrong with our world is in the end a consequence of sin, because everything that's wrong with the world is a consequence of the fall. And therefore, we could easily leap to the somewhat hasty conclusion that, well, if everything that's wrong is a consequence of sin, then if somebody is experiencing something which isn't how it ought to be or how they'd like it to be, experiencing anxiety or depression or something like that, well, they're sinning. Now, I want to say that those are, I think, hasty conclusions. 
it's possible to see why somebody would leap to that conclusion. And it must be the case that there is, in principle, a kind of sinful anxiety and a kind of sinful joylessness. Otherwise, what are these texts doing in the Bible? But, and here's the crucial but, and this is the thing I want us to remember as we're thinking about this issue. It does not follow from these texts that every instance of anxiety, every kind of depression is sinful. That's the mistake. To overgeneralize from some texts which say clearly that some kinds of anxiety are sinful or depression are sinful or joylessness are sinful to the assumption that all kinds of anxiety or depression or joylessness are sinful. That's a mistake. And you can easily see it in scripture because the same apostle who says, uh, don't be anxious about anything in Philippians 4 also says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he himself feels anxious about the fate of all the churches that he's caring for. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane looks to me pretty anxious. And as you read the Psalms, as we have been doing, you find that on more than one occasion, David, who is presented as the model of biblical piety, looks pretty downcast. So it can't be the case, it can't be the case, that just because a person is feeling anxious, or just because a person is feeling depressed, they're sinning. And we must avoid leaping to that conclusion. The question is, where do we go from here? We could try to figure out, in everyone's individual case, whether this is an example of uh, sinful anxiety, sinful joylessness, or whether this is something else along the lines of Jesus in Gethsemane or David in the Psalms. And we could try and tease these things apart. And there are some clues about that in Scripture. It looks, for example, um, that uh, in Matthew 6 and in Philippians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5, that the sinful kind of joylessness is connected with prayerlessness and a lack of thankfulness. Maybe those are some hints which might allow us to tease things apart a little bit. But the problem is, even with those things in place, it's not always clear where um, sinful anxiety or sinful depression or sinful joylessness begins and, and where we are in a particular case. So what do we do? I want to offer an illustration which I hope will set us up for what we're uh, going to be thinking about in the next couple of videos and actually picks up what I've been talking about previously about whether we really want to change. I want you to imagine a situation. Imagine that in the next few days a big storm sweeps through the city of Fort Worth and the surrounding area and as a consequence of this storm you get up in the morning and your front yard is uh, covered in debris, there's trash everywhere, there are broken tree branches uh, a branch has gone through the window of your car, there's broken glass everywhere, uh, there's, there's overflowing drains, everything's just a total mess. Now, as you look at that and your heart sinks, what do you think? You might think, here again, we see another consequence of the fall. Here again, we see another consequence of living in a broken world, a world that is scarred by sin, a world that is not as it ought to be. And you'd be right. Such events and the, the pain that results from them are a consequence of 
in the first sense, they're a consequence ultimately of Adam and Eve's first sin that brought sin into the world. But as you look at that mess, you don't think, oh, I've sinned. You certainly don't think the trash and the garbage and the debris everywhere and the overflowing drains, that's sinful, do you? We have a distinction here between something that arises from the, the brokenness and sinfulness of the world and something which is in itself nonetheless not actually sinful. But here's the crucial thing. What do you do? What do you do? Do you just sit there looking at the trash? Do you just sit there looking at the garbage, looking at the broken windows, looking at the branches strewn across your yard? Well, you know, yeah, you might do. <laughs> you might do for a while because, you know, you spent $2,000 on that new car and now look, it needs $500 worth of repairs. You spent ages on that bit of the garden now it's just ruined. You'd cleaned up everything and it all looked wonderful and now it's just trash and junk everywhere. You might just actually sit there for some time thinking, slightly overwhelmed, just as actually people who are experiencing some of these issues of emotional or uh, mental ill health sometimes feel a little bit overwhelmed. But here's the key point. We can't sit there forever, can we? We can't sit there forever. At some point, with all this trash in the garden, maybe we need to get a few friends round because we need a bit of support to clear up some of the mess, and we'll do it together. Uh, maybe the neighbours will finish off their garden, then you can borrow a, a truck and a chainsaw to chop up the broken boughs of the tree, and then you can clear them away. And together you can make some progress, even if you couldn't on your own. And I wonder if that's what we need to do with these emotional and, I guess, psychological issues as well. There's inevitably a, a time in which we just think, I feel overwhelmed by this. But we mustn't feel overwhelmed forever. And we mustn't let the questions about, oh, is this sinful and so on, cloud our vision. What we need to do is to be committed to take some kind of step towards fixing it. It might take a day to clear your yard. It might take a week. It might take a month. The clear up after some American storms seems to take months or even years. And maybe that's what it's going to be like with some of the storms, the emotional storms in our lives. But we must get started. We must help each other and we must be committed to taking those small steps to clear up the mess which has landed, so to speak, in our front yard. And I will, Lord willing, in the next video, start to give some biblical pointers in that direction. Thank you for sticking with me to the end of this one. The Lord bless you and I hope to see you soon. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. I want to begin in this video, as promised, by starting to explore some possible biblical pathways towards dealing with anxiety and depression. As I mentioned previously, I hope this will be helpful to all of us uh, because for reasons that will become clear in just a moment or so, a lot of the things that the Bible says about dealing with these particular kinds of issues actually apply fundamentally to all of us in whatever situation we're in, however our emotional or mental state might be. And basically, I just want to say two things in this video. Here's the first. People are complicated. That ought to be obvious, right? The Bible says that the creation reflects the majesty and grandeur of God. And as we look around at the world about us and as we think about how the world is portrayed in Scripture, it's 
unimaginably deep and rich and hard to grasp and complex. And human beings are, in a sense, the pinnacle of God's creation. It is we who are uniquely described in Genesis 1 as the image of God. And particularly, if you like, in our emotional and mental life, though the image of God is not restricted to that, it's, that's one of the distinctive things that sets us apart and makes us so much more complex than even the glorious and complex and wonderful things we see around us. So if people are complex, we're like um, the most complex thing in existence in the creation, apart from God himself who is outside of the creation. Just think about what happens when something goes wrong with something complex. If something that is complicated stops working in quite the way that it was supposed to work, we don't prescribe a simplistic one-size-fits-all solution, do we? And that's the first thing I want to highlight. We shouldn't be trying to approach these issues of anxiety and depression by looking for the magic bullet looking for the simplistic uh, nugget of insight, which will just transform our lives overnight. Life isn't like that. And nothing that I say in these videos is intended to suggest that. I'm not, when I give advice occasionally, I'm not trying to suggest, you know, if you just follow this piece of advice, your life will be better by tomorrow morning. Of course, I'm not saying that. People are complex. Life is complex. And yet, and this leads to the second thing I want to say, there are some commonalities between us. There are some things that, despite our diversity, we all have in common. And it's worth observing what those things are, because when we can observe what they are, that might help us to see where we should be headed and perhaps even how we might get there. So here's the second thing I want to highlight. Scripture, when it's dealing with what makes human beings work in the way that we're supposed to be, is fundamentally practical. You might say wholeness as a human person is fundamentally a practical matter. It includes, obviously, emotional and mental and psychological aspects. But just think about how Scripture presents how life ought to be lived. We don't find in Scripture, do we, a, a pastoral counselling manual. We observed already that in the book, not even in the book of Psalms, do we find um, laments which are specifically about anxiety or depression as such. What we do find in places like the book of Proverbs is intensely practical depictions of how the human life is supposed to be lived. And of course, the book of Proverbs has in its background the doctrine of creation and the book of Genesis and the depiction of how God made human beings and what he made us for. And here's the key insight. If we're able to get a handle on those practical aspects of how we ought to be, we may find that in God's providence, those practical things are connected to our emotional state and our mental state so that by reorienting the practical features of our lives, actually our emotional state our psychological state is radically transformed. So just think briefly about the sorts of things that the Bible says uh, are included in this practical list of what makes human beings function right. Genesis 1 says we're created by God to fill and subdue the world. What that means is work or a vocation which takes hold of the good things that God has given and makes them into something better and more wonderful. 
For people who are able to have children, it's clear throughout Scripture that to bear and to raise children is the highest privilege and the most wonderful way of sharing God's work of creation. Like Eve cries out in Genesis, with the help of God, I've brought forth a man. What an astonishing thing to be doing. But elsewhere, we find other things that human beings are supposed to do. If you're not able to work yet, you should be studying. You should be laboring to gain the wisdom of King Solomon. Uh, we should be worshipping. We need to worship corporately and individually in prayer and in studying the scriptures. We need to rest. We need to sleep. You can't work all the time. The essence of humanity is not, as the Marxists said, work. It is actually rest and worship in the presence of God. And work is the privilege we're given to share in what God is doing in the world. We need well-functioning relationships. We need people around us whom we love and are committed to love, even when they drive us up the wall at times. We need accountability because we will drive other people up the wall at times. And we, don't, we need people to call us out on that. And we need forgiveness both ways when those relationships occasionally turn sour so that they can be restored. That's what relationships are supposed to be like. We need physical activity. It sounds so mundane, doesn't it? But in the ancient world, this was just taken for granted. Almost everybody would work physically because there weren't jobs like IT professionals in abundance, which meant you could spend eight or ten hours a day sitting at a desk. And so if necessary, we might need to create some of that physical activity for ourselves to, to give ourselves the kind of physical environment that human bodies were made by God for. And under the heading of all that uh, background of the, the uh, creation mandate in Genesis, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We need, if you like, the growing sense of responsibility, the sense that as we are fulfilling God's call to go out into the world, to fill, to subdue, to have dominion under the loving rule of Jesus Christ, we're taking on new challenges. And so all those things form part of the practical uh, picture that scripture gives of what a, a human being is made to be. Now, once you th think of it like that, you can easily see what's going to happen if any of those things are missing. Let's consider uh, a simple and caricatured example of what happens when that goes wrong. Imagine uh, a young man in his 20s who's uh, never worked a day at, at school and never worked a day in his life since leaving school. He gets up regularly about uh, midday and spends the next 15 hours slumped on the sofa uh, playing video games until he goes to bed at three in the morning and his diet consists entirely of donuts and soda. And now imagine he comes to you and complains of his emotional ill health issues. Well, let me tell you, firstly, you won't be surprised. And secondly, you will have some very practical suggestions for him, won't you? About what he might actually do, which would reorient his life. Now, obviously, that's a, an extreme and caricatured example but it serves to highlight a point, doesn't it? If we have no responsibilities, if we are just really, really unhealthy in all our habits, if we never work, or if we don't have the responsibilities or the work that we could have, or if our relationships are, if not uh, absent like that man, perhaps not how they ought to be. If we have unreconciled relationships, which ought to be sorted out, all of that is going to affect us as a person. And as it affects us as a person, it's going to affect our emotional health and our psychological health as well. So that broad picture is what I want to leave you with. Not the picture of the man on the sofa munching donuts all day, but the picture of a, a full-orbed, rounded life as it ought 
to be lived. Now in the next video, I'm going to start exploring uh, another question which sometimes people ask about these issues. That is the place of uh, medical, pharmaceutical, drug-based treatments. Because I think that we have some important things to learn about those issues as well. But for now, uh, be assured, praying for you all and looking forward, God willing, to seeing you all very soon. Bye for now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. I want to continue in this video where we left off last time, thinking about some possible biblical pathways towards dealing with anxiety and depression and similar mental health issues. And today I want to consider the subject of pharmaceutical treatments, medical treatments uh, for the symptoms of these uh, maladies which involve taking drugs. On the face of it, you might not think this is something that the Bible is going to say much about, because obviously this wasn't an option that was on the table in the days of Moses or Paul or Jesus. However, it turns out that uh, the question of why drugs may be helpful actually raises some issues which are fundamental to the Bible's way of dealing with these issues and helping us to think about them, and therefore it may be useful for us to consider them together. The case in favour of using drug treatments for mental health disorders is strengthened by the immense benefit that these drugs seem to have, especially in serious cases. And uh, there are numerous accounts in medical literature, you may be aware of them, too many to count, um, of people whose lives literally have been saved, seemingly, by drug-based interventions. People with very serious mental health disorders, uh, taking them to a point of uh, suicidal uh, feelings and so on. Praise God for the possibility of pharmaceutical interventions in those cases. At the same time, probably all of us have a degree of at least hesitancy, which is shared, as far as I can make out, by doctors, professionals in this area, about drugs being, so to speak, the first port of call. Because whenever you take anything that's designed to do something to your body or your mind, your emotional state, there's always a, a potential cost. There's always a potential downside, whether it's side effects or... Who really wants to be dependent on uh, external chemicals if it's not necessary? And so we find ourselves caught between two stools, don't we? We don't want to dismiss the value of these treatments because of the benefits that they clearly have, and praise God for that. On the other hand, what are we supposed to think? Because we wouldn't want to end up taking them unnecessarily. How, how do we rationalise and think about this, especially actually for people who are taking them and whose lives are able to be lived in a fairly normal way because of those drug-based interventions. How should we think about that? Well, the question that this raises is actually a crucial insight for us thinking about this whole question, and it's something we've touched on already. But the human person is an integrated whole, body and mind. We are not uh, just a body, and we are not just a mind disconnected from the body. Rather, our bodies and minds are interconnected and interwoven, with the result that things that affect our mind affect our body, and things that affect our body then affect our mind. 
So what that means at a most basic level, if we just think, just forget about drugs specifically for the moment, we'll come back to it in a second or two. But when we're, whenever we're thinking about emotional and psychological health and well-being, we shouldn't detach that from basic physical things as well. We're, we're all wrapped up in the same kind of organically connected whole. And so things that affect our bodies are going to affect our minds. Now, what's intriguing to me, at least here, is that um, things that you find scattered around the Bible, little hints that you find scattered around the Bible, are starting uh, to coalesce with the discoveries of modern medicine and physiology and psychotherapy and so on, uh, concerning how to help people deal with mental health issues and various other treatments and so on. It's not that we find technical discussions in scripture about uh, how the brain works or um, how neurotransmitters are affected by our diet or anything like that. But what we do find in scripture are indications of how the body and the mind are connected, which modern medicine has started to, if you like, shed light on from another angle. It's kind of interesting to think about some of these. Let me give you some examples. Think about sleep, for an example. A, a, a number of you I've spoken to about um, sleep, and uh, you maybe hope you're not getting bored of me talking about it, but it turns out to be both biblically and medically a very important thing. Doctors are beginning to realise this, the last 10 or 20 years especially. But in scripture, just forget about modern medicine for a second, I'm always struck by Psalm 3. We looked at this a few weeks ago where David is crying out to the Lord in anguish and seemingly at the end of his tether. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. And then verse four, he cries aloud to the Lord and the Lord answers. And the form that the Lord answer answers, the, the form that the Lord an Lord's answer, sorry, takes is verse five. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And then notice what happens in verse six. It's as though David's perspective is completely transformed. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who've set themselves against me all around. So what strange thing has happened? David starts off crying out to God in anguish. The Lord answers him in the form of minimally, at least, a good night's sleep and a divinely granted change in perspective on the situation so that now he's not afraid of things. Psalm 127 says that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. And when we view this from the perspective of modern medicine, and I don't speak as a medical expert at all, I just speak as somebody who's read a bunch of books on the subject, it's now increasingly clear, just from a physiological perspective, why this should be the case, that we're unable to regulate our moods appropriately if we don't have um, a good night's sleep. We all know the phenomenon of a young child who's irritable and bursts into tears quickly, and you might say, oh, no, he's tired. Right, he's tired. Give him a good night's sleep, it'll be okay again. Because part of how God has made our bodies is that we need sleep to reorient ourselves appropriately to the world around us and to handle it emotionally. Food, similarly, I always think of how um, in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan's eyes brightened as he tasted the honey. That, had been, uh, that was on the ground. Well, if you were a neuroscientist reading that, you might talk about how the brain needs glucose in order to function appropriately. Um, I've read one psychologist who says he's actually successfully treated people with various psychiatric disorders by 
modifying their diet to stabilize their blood sugar during the day so that they don't have the mood swings and the emotional ups and downs that are so uh, often associated with that. Similarly, exercise. Um, you may have read contemporary accounts of people who have successfully managed to treat and handle their symptoms of emotional or mental ill health in an ongoing way simply by feeding exercise into their lives. Now, scripture, as I mentioned in the previous video, simply takes for granted that we will have a moderately active life, at least. And if we're stuck slumped like it's very easy for us all to do, you know, eight or ten hours a day slumped over a desk, then maybe we need to feed some of that kind of stuff um, into our lives. And again, you'll find modern uh, medicine that confirms what Paul the Apostle says, physical training is of some value. Modern research which confirms what we now know, or think we know scientifically, that the human body produces all kinds of hormones which make us feel differently in response to exercise and so on. So what am I really saying here? Well, I'm saying that the way that God has wired us and we get hints of this throughout scripture, is that these basic physical needs that we have affect our emotional and mental health. And there's no getting away from it. And we should thank God for the fact that modern research has uncovered some of the mechanisms by which God sometimes works in some cases to make those adjustments in us. Right, now, back to the question of drugs then. Imagine if there's something wrong with somebody's body, a physical ailment, such that um, they have great trouble sleeping. Or such that they're, maybe they're diabetic and they have trouble regulating their blood sugar. Well, clearly, those physical maladies, those physical um, illnesses, may affect their emotional or psychological well-being. So if there was a drug that you could take which would help to regulate how your body responded in those physical ways, it would have corresponding positive knock-on effects on our emotional health, wouldn't it? And I think we should not be afraid to acknowledge that. We don't want to be the kind of Christians who think that trusting God and praying to God for help means uh, not turning to the means of help that God has given us. In this case, it will be doctors and modern medicine. Praise God for those things. And praise God for the kind of doctors who are willing to uh, give wise counsel about when they may be appropriate and when they may not be appropriate. Obviously, that's a huge issue, and that's something which we need to see doctors about. Praise God for those doctors who are willing to serve us in that way. Okay, that's enough for now, I think. In the next video, I'm going to talk about another uh, widely touted and widely used treatment for these issues, namely counselling. And that'll do though for now, I think. In the meantime, God bless you and look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. So as promised, we're continuing this series of videos thinking now about biblical pathways towards dealing with these various issues of anxiety and various forms of depression and other uh, mental health issues. And I promised that in this video, we would talk about the subject of counselling. How can counselling help us to address these issues? Well, this is certainly, for many Christians, the most natural thing to try, so to speak. It's certainly the thing that Pastor Neil and I most often find people requesting of us. And with good reason. This is a very biblical uh, 
uh, instinct that we should go to others, perhaps particularly our ministers, for advice, for counsel, in order to help us untangle and to deal appropriately with the issues that we've been thinking about. But therein lies the issue. When you ask for counselling, what exactly should you be expecting to receive? I think sometimes we operate with a set of assumptions about what counselling is for or what counselling should involve or how counselling should work, which it's worth examining. It's worth asking ourselves the question, what is involved in counselling and how can the different elements contribute towards a biblical pathway towards dealing with these particular issues? It turns out that there are many different elements to what counselling can involve. And the different elements are helpful, particularly in different areas of life. Let me give you some examples. Perhaps the most basic element of counselling is to listen and to comfort and just to pray and to be with somebody who's experiencing a particularly trying time. And you can imagine circumstances in which that would be particularly helpful, just particularly perhaps if somebody has been bereaved and just needs a shoulder to cry on or somebody to be with them or somebody to pray with them, to comfort them. Then, of course, along with the listening process, perhaps particularly in some other areas where people are struggling, there's a diagnosis that goes on. The, the counsellor will listen and try and work out what's happened. In some cases, it's not obvious. Some instances, there are all kinds of tangled things going on in somebody's lives. And it's, it's just hard to work out exactly what the issues are. But then as you're working through um, the listening and diagnosing process, we, we come across various other paths forward. And all these things can be involved in counselling, uh, biblical instruction or theological instruction, practical advice. Uh, encouragement and exhortation. And you can imagine all the kinds of different things that uh, a Christian might come to their minister or to another counsellor with various uh, problems, so to speak. And uh, in, depending on what the problem is, different things will be appropriate. Uh, sometimes there's a debate that goes on. You know, somebody will come with a, a question. It's like, I don't understand this. Or I was surprised, Pastor, by something you said on Sunday. And there's actually a, a dialogue goes on. Uh, there's almost always a dialogue of some kind, but sometimes it's a, a theological debate. Uh, sometimes there's an issue of sin involved. And what actually has to happen is that somebody's, you know, they either come for counselling or the minister would ask to see them and, and challenge them about something, something that's in scripture where there's a, an issue of repentance that needs to be addressed. And all these different elements of what can go on in counselling are valuable and they're relevant differently in different situations. Some of them, in fact many of them, may be relevant in situations involving anxiety and depression and so on. But there's one that's missing from this list. And it's the one which, to my mind, is most relevant in most of the kinds of instances we've been talking about, and actually, indeed, in many other areas of life. This is one point at which thinking about a Christian response to, let's say, anxiety, 
actually helps us to think about a Christian response to many other things as well, because it turns out that the missing element from our picture so far is actually crucial for helping all of us to grow in maturity in Christ. And I want to see if you can figure out what the missing element might be. Just recall what we were thinking about a couple of videos ago, about how scripture addresses issues of anxiety and depression and other related mental Ill health uh, situations. It doesn't contain a counselling manual, does it? You remember, instead I indicated that what it does is it paints a picture, so to speak, of how life ought to be lived. You find it in places like the book of Proverbs, and in, uh, which has its background in the doctrine of creation, and other places where the, the full-orbed, stable, uh, faithful and fruitful, well-functioning Christian life has a number of elements in it, like work and worship and rest and so on. Go back and listen to that video if, you, if you've forgotten what's on that list. Well, if that's the way that life ought to be lived, then counselling, in order to be effective biblical counselling, has at some point to try and help people towards establishing those patterns of life again. And here's where it becomes clear what the missing element in our list of the features of counselling so far is. You might call it coaching. One of the most crucial elements in biblical counselling to help people deal with anxiety, to help people deal with some forms of depression, and frankly to help people deal with a whole swathe of other issues, is actually the neglected element of coaching. I'm not now talking about the the trendy uh, practice which has become popular in recent years, lifestyle coaches. I met somebody in here in North London a few weeks ago who's a uh, not many weeks ago, a few months ago, um, it feels like a few weeks ago, but it was actually a long time ago, um, uh, who has described herself as a life coach. I thought that sounds like a sort of trendy modern thing, and indeed it is. But we're not talking about that uh, kind of uh, trendy modern therapy. What we're talking about is an ongoing program of helping somebody to re-establish biblical patterns of life, helping them to reset themselves, so to speak, so that they're operating more how we ought to be. This reflects the fact that we are, as some theologians have uh, pointed out in recent years, liturgical creatures. That is to say, we are creatures whose habits and whose rituals and whose daily patterns of life very, very much shape who we are. And quite often, uh, anxiety or some forms of depression or various other issues that arise in our lives happen because we've got into habits which are just not the right kind of habits. We've got into patterns of life that aren't the right patterns of life. And so what counselling, therefore, is, is sitting and listening and talking together about how somebody's life is being lived to try and establish, well, here's a path towards re-establishing the healthy, right, fruitful patterns of life. Of course, this brings with it a cost, because it turns out that it's much harder, actually, for the person who has been seeking the counselling, 
once they realise that what they really need is to do something different for the whole of the rest of their lives. What we'd all like is to go to a counsellor who's like a kind of super doctor, a sort of spiritual doctor who waves a spiritual magic wand, so to speak, and cures the problem. Like, when we've got backache, what we'd really like to do is to go to the doctor and they give us an injection or a tablet and take the backache away. What they might actually say is, well, no, you need to go swimming twice a week for six months and then your backache will be better. And it's much, much harder for us, isn't it, to engage in the hard discipline of physical training to sort out your back rather than just to take a tablet. Well, this is why I said what I said four or five videos ago about the importance of asking ourselves that crucial question. Do I really want to change? Because one of the things that's going to be necessary for all of us to deal with whatever is not as it ought to be in our lives is a commitment not just to seek advice. That's hard sometimes to, you know, to be, have the courage to, to speak up and say, hey, listen, I think there's something that isn't as it ought to be here. But it's the next step. It's having had that conversation to go away for the next two, three, four weeks and really try to reshape our habits and then to come back and say, well, look, it's been going really well or this hasn't been going so well. I need a bit more encouragement or whatever. I need a bit more advice. How can I change this? But it's here's the crucial thing. It's the ongoing commitment that we all need in every area of our lives and perhaps particularly people who are suffering with anxiety and so on need to re orient our lives day to day and counselling is supposed to be the coaching that helps that process to happen. Well as I said a few times uh, if things in this video or the previous video in videos in this series have struck a chord with you please don't hesitate to give us a shout send us an email it'd be great to talk otherwise I look forward to seeing you soon and in the next video we'll pick up some other uh, dangling threads so to speak that will help us to further explore biblical paths to dealing with these issues. God bless and bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in once again. We are coming to the end of this short series of videos looking at anxiety and depression and various mental health issues. And the reason I say that is not because there's nothing more to say. There is a ton more that we could say. These issues are really complex and far-reaching. But I think we're getting to the point now where to go further in any useful directions would involve being rather more specific. And therefore it would involve knowing a little bit more about the particular details of what an individual person is dealing with. And so really the aim of this video is one final encouragement to you. If you are being affected by any of these issues we've been talking about, if you've Anything I've said has struck a chord with you. If you have been affected in the past or you know somebody else who's being affected with them right now, please, please, please give us a call. Get in touch. Drop me an email. And let's work out a time when we can talk and start plotting, if you like, a biblical path towards dealing with these issues. And to that end, I want to just give one final big bunch of encouragement to you today. I want to uh, make some sociological comments and also some biblical or theological comments that I hope will encourage you to think, yes, maybe these things can be dealt with. Maybe they won't be easy, but maybe it's not hopeless. And to encourage you, therefore, to get in touch and give me a call. First, some sociological or really demographic observations. 
Between 2010 and 2016, a series of studies was done in American universities and colleges in which college-aged young adults were asked whether or not they would self-diagnose with having a psychological disorder. And the researchers found in those six or seven years between 2010 and 2016 some astonishing results. The number of men who self-diagnosed with some kind of psychological disorder more than doubled during that time. And the number of women nearly tripled. Nearly three times as many people self-diagnosed as having some kind of psychological or mental ill health condition between 2010 and 2016. What on earth is going on? Well, clearly something significant is happening. It might be, of course, that there's greater... Uh, awareness of these issues or uh, a reduced social stigma and so that people feel more uh, able to uh, so to speak voice their anxiety or they don't feel that they'll be criticized for it or held in contempt for it now, that's a good thing that people should feel free to talk and raise these issues i've been encouraging you to do that all along and i want to encourage you to do so there's um a temptation, and I've seen this in one or two places, to uh, dismiss some of the increased numbers as uh, people over-diagnosing or misdiagnosing. Um, and I'm tempted to say, well, we never really know if we're asking people to self-diagnose. We never really know quite what they're pointing to. But here's the vital thing. Something is going on. Something significant is going on to account for that. And it's not something we should ignore. We shouldn't ignore it, uh, even if... Uh, in clinical terms, some of the increased diagnoses were not accurate clinical diagnoses. Clearly, they cannot be ignored if nearly three times as many women are giving a, pos a positive uh, diagnosis uh, just in the space of that short period of time. Now, what that means, of course, is that we must try to understand what are the social factors that may lie behind this. And I'm not a sociologist, and so I found it very helpful just to try and do a bit of reading on this subject. One book I want to recommend to you uh, is this one. It's by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. I'll try and remember to put the details in the uh, uh, email I send out. Um, Haidt and Lukianoff uh, do have uh, some presuppositions that I personally wouldn't be happy with, and on a couple of pages you'll see that. They're operating from an evolutionary perspective, which I wouldn't personally embrace, and I'm sure that many of you wouldn't. Yet at the same time, they are very, very shrewd sociologists and psychologists as well. And so they help us, they've certainly helped me to understand what are some of the practical social factors and technological factors, actually, which may have led to some of the issues that we've been talking about and the increase in recent years. So I want to recommend that to you. It doesn't dismiss the problem at all. Quite the contrary, it takes it extremely seriously. But encouragingly, it identifies some practical ways in which it might be possible to address it. And that takes us to the second encouragement I want to offer you briefly. Um, the Bible teaches that change is possible. And the Bible uh, draws many different threads together to identify how and why and to what extent change is possible. I just want to highlight a couple for you. First, Scripture teaches that our identity, who we are and how we feel, is really the result of an accumulation of past experiences. In fact, 
human history as a whole is a little bit like that and individual human beings are a kind of microcosm of the history of the universe what, what a person is or what the universe is is in theological terms the accumulation of all that's happened to it or in our case the accumulation of all that's happened to us and of course that accounts for a great many of the negative as well as positive uh, feelings that we have that we look back and we think oh such and such a thing has been happening to me over a period of time or I've been living in a certain way for a certain period of time and that accounts for who I am today we're like the sum total of all of our past experiences but because that's the case there is hope for the future because in a year's time well I'll have a whole year of new experiences, new ways of looking at the world and living in the world and engaging with the world, which by God's grace may change who I am. And if I approach that in a purposeful and Christ-like and godly and biblical and wise way, there is every possibility, and this goes for all of us, whatever situation we're in, that we may all change for what Christ would regard as the better. That brings us to the second point, of course, which, which is that all change is gradual. The Lord Jesus Christ did not found a kingdom already populated by seven or eight billion people. Now, the growth of the kingdom is like yeast permeating through dough. It's gradual. It's like a, a seed that's planted that grows up gradually, gradually, gradually. And we know this again in our own lives. Our own lives are a microcosm of the history of the world and of the history of the kingdom of God. And we grow gradually in wisdom gradually in godliness, gradually in maturity. Many parents wish they could just snap their fingers and their two-year-old uh, tearaway will become a wise and godly 18-year-old. And it just doesn't happen like that, does it? We all gradually grow, and we gradually grow in many other ways too. We gradually grow in dealing with whatever is going on in our minds and our hearts that may not be as we would want it to be and as it ought to be. So growth is gradual and that ought to encourage us too because if you don't see progress tomorrow or the next day or the next week we'll keep going till the next month or the next year and trust the living God that growth and change is possible even though it's gradual and finally an observation about what God has made us to be like people are astonishingly tough I thought about making a whole video about this and just going through a list of biblical characters and reminding you of what God made people capable of enduring but I thought the point would be uh, overdone I'm going to leave you just to do it yourselves just think of the lives of Ruth and Mary and King David and Boaz and Joseph and Esther and Daniel and consider the things that they endured consider not just the physical hardships but the emotional torment that those people went through and consider how God made them in his wisdom tough enough to withstand what we can't really even imagine and they're made of the same stuff as us they're made by the same God as us they're made by they're loved by the same Lord Jesus Christ by whose blood they're redeemed and I want to encourage you with that thought as well that uh, However feeble we feel, God has made us astonishingly resilient, astonishingly tough. And part of the challenge of dealing with every situation in our lives, whatever it is, a new job, 
moving to a new location, joining a church for the first time, standing up in a speech and debate class and saying something for the first time, part of the challenge of dealing with everything, having your first child, whatever it is, getting married, everything in life is about seeing this mountain which looks too high for you to climb and trusting the living God that he will take you there gradually, one step at a time, and that you are, by his grace, in the power of the Spirit, in union with Christ, tough enough for him to take you through it. Well, listen, I hope that encourages you. Um, I think this series has probably gone on long enough now, so we're going to start on something else, Lord willing, uh, in the next couple of days. But again, please, please, please give us a call. Get in touch. Let's talk some more. And let's try and deal in a faithful, biblical, godly way as much as we can with whatever it is that may be troubling you. All right. God bless. And I'll see you soon.